Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and most leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, you better hop on over to Amazon and pick it up. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your support and interest. My guest today is singer-guitarist Arnell Carmichael, an original member of the dynamic and successful funk R&B band Radio that eventually became leader Ray Parker Jr.'s backing group. Parker had been one of popular music's most in-demand session guitar players, and among many other things, composed Rufus's classic hit, You Got the Love, back in 1974. Other band members, bassist Jerry Knight and drummer Ollie Brown, would go on to further success as a duo and separately, including up-tempo early 1980s hits like Breaking There's No Stopping Us, Overnight Sensation, and Perfect Fit. Radio's self-titled debut album dropped in 1978 and went top 10 on the U.S. R&B chart, in large part due to the catchy, mellow hit, Jack and Jill. That scored top 10 on the U.S. pop chart. But that song scarcely scratched the surface of the fierce funk that was also prominent on that record, including the top 20 R&B single, Is This a Love Thing, as well as Me, You Need This to Satisfy That, and the instrumental Get Down. The tunefulness, prominent synthesizer, rubbery grooves, stinging guitar, pervasive sense of fun, and creative vocal arrangements added up to a fantastically infectious sound. Something akin, I would say, to an orchestral, to, to orchestral funk mastermind Norman Whitfield producing the spinners. Equally strong was Radio's second album, Rock On, which went top five on the US R&B chart, powered by the hit follow-up single in the mold of Jack and Jill called You Can't Change That. That was another top 10 US pop hit Again, this record contained first-rate funk throwdowns as well, and the title track, Rock On, and also What You Waiting For, Hot Stuff, not the Donna Summer song, and When You're In Need Of Love. It also included one of my favorite ballads by the band, Going Through School and Love. The hits and success kept coming on the next two albums, 1980s Two Places at the Same Time, and 81's A Woman Needs Love. They were released under the name Ray Parker, Jr. and Radio. Both were top 10 R&B albums, and Woman Needs Love was the group's first number one. That's both the album and the single. And that single became an anthem for women, really caught fire. While it was a milder fare that continued to race up the charts, those in the know knew radio continued to keep it groovy. In particular, with the Funkadelic One Nation Under a Groove-inspired instrumental for those who like to groove, and its sequel still in the groove. Carmichael continued to sing with Parker even as he completely dropped the radio name for 1982's The Other Woman. That was a number one R&B record that posted three top 10 R&B hits, and also 1983's Woman Out of Control, another top 20 R&B album. Unfortunately, as the band's role was diminished, the vocals became less compelling, the funk began to fade, and somewhat ironically, so did record sales. Woman Out of Control did a run of five straight gold certified albums. Carmichael also contributed to 1985's Sex and the Single Man album, which despite coming on the heels of the monster success of Parker's Ghostbusters, failed to crack the top 40. Still in total, Radio and Ray Parker Jr. recorded six top 20 R&B albums 
five of them top 10, and 14 top 20 R&B songs, as well as 13 top 40 pop tunes. Other top tier artists Carmichael has lent his golden pipes to included Leo Sayer, Latoya Jackson, Tina Marie, Cheryl Lynn, and Diana Ross. So with that impressive history, it's time to turn the spotlight on a soaring voice heard on dozens of the late 1970s and early 1980s finest and funkiest tracks. I'm delighted to welcome to the program, Mr. Arnell Carmichael. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Coming to us from Detroit today. Yeah, from Detroit, Michigan. Here I am. Here I am, Scott. <laughs> All right. Well, Charlotte on this end, Charlotte, North Carolina. So how are you feeling overall? How are you doing? Well, overall, I'm, I'm fine. You know, um, uh, at this point now, we're 65. <laughs> and I'm having a lot of fun in terms of, uh, you know, my own personal control of my career. So it's very interesting. You know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm healthy. I think this is one of the things that I probably have uh, maybe over a lot of guys now who are or have been in the business since the 70s, you know, I, I tried to stay healthy. I'm not saying I ate the right foods. I just like exercising and, you know, just trying to stay healthy as much as I could. So. Well, great. I'm very, very glad to hear that. I'm very glad that you're around to participate in this and, and share your, your great stories and legacy. So thank you for that. Thank you for uh, approaching. I'm not a, a big fan of interviews, but I figured this one, because uh, I, I saw your show um, probably before you contacted me. And then when you contacted me, I went back and saw it before. And I thought, that's pretty cool. Well, thank yeah. you. I appreciate we've, that. Appreciate yeah, we've gone through, uh, when I say we, you know, uh, just people in general have gone through so many changes. I remember. Uh, like somewhere around 82 or 83 when computers came into existence. So to be able to do this right now is like amazing. It's, just, it's an amazing. I, I know. Well, I, I'm right there with you because, you know, I was in Los Angeles my whole life and close okay. to the record business and the entertainment industry came out here like 10 years ago. And the fact that I can still have my finger in it remotely like this is just beautiful yeah. through the internet. So yeah. How, I mean, just speaking about, uh, Oh, you're in you're in South Carolina or, or North Carolina, North Carolina. OK, yeah, I was going to ask how L.A. is doing, but looks like they're doing pretty bad out there with all of the fire stuff going on. Yeah, it's crazy. I still my family's out there and I have a lot of friends out there and I've been talking okay. to them. Fortunately, they've been doing OK. But yeah, it's it's crazy. Prayers so, going up. Yeah. 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 We wish them all the best uh, uh, recovery out there. So, um, Arnell, let's dig in with, uh, you know, your roots. You know, how did you first get into music? You're from the uh, Detroit area, and uh, how did you kind of cut your teeth musically? Well, what, what a lot of people don't know. Um, my father, he owned a record company. And I really had no intention of being in the music business. But it was um, kind of like the faith fate allowed it to happen. Um, my brother, my cousin, uh, my brother uh, now London Carmichael, I say now because then he was known as Darren, and my cousin James Angelo Carmichael, we formed a group 
uh, young teenager uh, after James Brown had affected my <laughs> cousin. He used to dance a lot. So we decided let's try to do a singing group. And that was called the Carmichael Movement. Now, even as my father had D-Town, Mike Hanks is my biological father. And uh, he had uh, a company called D-Town, Lee Rogers, uh, Cody Black, Emmanuel Lasky. I could just name like all of these people, even um, the guys from Undisputed Truth, um, Joe, Joe Harris, uh, at the time Joe Pep, I think. Uh, he did a lot of work, James Cleveland, um, um, Mavis Staples. I mean, he just did just so much work. But because we were uh, not, let's say, in the same family together, me being, me, my sister, and my, uh, my younger brother were with my mother, uh, he, we didn't pursue, you know, all of the relationships that it, you know, takes to, maintain a family, but I had an uncle, Jerry uh, Carmichael, who um, he managed us. He allowed us to um, come under his tutelage and we uh, began to sing. It's funny, uh, California Dreaming was the first record that we ever practiced as a cover band, as a cover group, uh, Carmichael Movement. And we took that as a tape uh, which is actually, it's a weird story because it's actually, uh, um, it was a recording over on a two-track Magnavox, two-track uh, tape machine that my aunt had gave us. Said, well, you guys use this and see what you come up with. So we gave him the recording and he went crazy and he was like, well, you guys are young and you should, uh, you know, pursue this, you know, because you're younger. We couldn't be no more than 12, 13, 14. Um, and again, because my father had a record company, uh, we thought that we would eventually grow into being artists on D-Town. D-Town, nine houses away from Motown, total competition with Motown, putting records out. And uh, somewhere as time goes on, I get the, one of my first records, which was uh, now recorded uh, by Kid Rock called Detroit, Michigan. That was the first record that I actually had in my hand. And uh, when I realized, or when we realized that, you know, the possibilities of things that could happen, we began to uh, uh, perform, entertain in the Detroit area, uh, and were, you know, was noticed by a lot of people. Uh, Strange but true. My best friends were Gordy's uh, at the time, and I, I wanted to be a Motown. <laughs> I wanted to be a Motown artist because the Jacksons were just starting, so we all started around the same time. Uh, and uh, he died. He he was killed in uh, 1970 in a uh, dispute over uh, a bad relationship brothers you know who were pissed because of a sister not being satisfied and they got into a struggle and he was killed with his own weapons so that kind of threw me for a loop but you know we knew a lot of people and uh we continued on to uh, pursue our careers uh 
through all of the relationships and the musicians. Because at that time, um, when you're in Detroit, Michigan, and Motown is kind of like the biggest thing that's happening musically, along with all of the other small record companies, it's kind of like a the factory blue collar blue collar environment, blue collar environment, and that environment uh, produced a lot of people, a lot of musicians. Uh, would go on to be successful in, in uh, the music business. So the Carmichael movement started it all, and here we are. <laughs> well, so, uh, so that must have been that an incredible company from that environment. Um, it, it, you know, was it like you would just go out and you would see, you know, either people that were established or people that were up and coming just, you know, all over that area? I, I've been... To a lot of areas of this country are now, but I've not been to Detroit. So if you could kind of give us a sense of what that was like in the in the 70s. Wow, back then it was amazing. I mean, because um, even as, as like what what is happening with the, uh, I want to say the, the presence of Michigan uh, in a national environment and what you think of it in terms of uh, being a, a, a city of popularity, uh, on these certain lists and you, you get all this thing about violence and uh, just the demeanor of what uh, it was. Well, back then in the Detroit metropolitan area, you could literally go uh, up to a main thoroughway, uh, thoroughfare or boulevard and there was some place to perform. Uh, and because my uncle was our manager at the time, we, um, we performed at a lot of house parties like, you know, Jackson. I didn't start in a church like most guys, but uh, Michigan and Detroit, again, the Detroit metropolitan area, it probably was over like 200, maybe 300 different uh, club arenas holding 150, 200 people, more than it is now. And so you would then, because of course, no computers, you could then go uh, to most places to get a gig, cover songs. Um, at the time, uh, groups like uh, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Philadelphia, you know, uh, acts uh, were coming to town. Uh, OJ's uh, Temptations was at the Twenty Grand, which was really like this big popularity place that was when my father was actually killed at in the parking lot but it was i can't even like in my mind i can't even name all of the places that were uh allowing acts to perform remember a place uh henry's lounge which is from where i where i am now maybe 15 minutes at best uh had so many acts coming there that i remember um uh and i want to say his name because this is interesting uh, part of this would be uh meatloaf right yeah before he was meatloaf he was another guy i can't think of the name of it but uh we would go to henry's and see this guy white guy singing with a girl and I was like, this guy's really, really good, you know. And it was, he had another name, though. It wasn't Meatloaf at the time. And uh, we just, 
you know, went to this place where you see all these different acts. And uh, Phyllis Hyman, I'm, I'm, I'm 65, so I'm at that time maybe 15, 16, maybe 17, and uh, at, no, look, yeah, well, no, 13, 14, 15. So all these people are maybe a couple of years older than me. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, uh, we got to move our careers faster, you know, stuff like that. Uh, uh, even at that young age, now we talked about just the average uh, venue on a on a boulevard. Well, then what about the colleges? Or what about just uh, halls, like local halls, where people rent out for parties, where you could then go and see maybe a close to a hundred different acts, uh, from guys performing Jimi Hendrix to Grand Funk Railroad to uh, uh, I want to say uh, what's in David Bowie uh, type acts. I mean. Michigan had a lot of music going on where you could just go to a college function and see some kind of party. Uh, in the same night, you probably could see maybe five or six different acts uh, if you if you could drive around that fast uh, and then go before the night was ending to a nightclub and see a major act that had records and you know 45s and lps you know the the list just goes on and on of how active it was it wasn't until around the 70s close to the end of the 60s after the riot and all of that that uh it became unappealing to be in detroit you know uh, motown left and all of the independent record companies that were starting you know were kind of not holding on to um maybe the greater success that they wanted. You know? Ar Arnell, let me ask you this. Did it strike you when you were so young at the time as, wow, this this is, seems, this is really special, or was it just all you knew, so it's just what it was? Well, and I don't want to say that I didn't realize it was, it was uh, that it wasn't special or that it was special. I didn't realize that. I mean, at the time, you're young, um, and everything that you want in terms of uh, – the possibility of uh, being successful. You know, most people may be at the time pursuing uh, school, which is what I really wanted to do. So I thought that at the time, and this is just as honest as I could be, I thought, well, wait a minute, we're getting a hard time as blacks, getting uh, loans and grants and getting money uh, to go do certain things that I said, well, maybe music will afford me uh, the money that I need to go to school. And at the time, uh, my mother had me taking music lessons and, um, I realized the women, there's something to this, you know, I might be able to get into uh, a bigger position. And so it's difficult to really, uh, like if you want to navigate your career, my uncle was, a uh, he was a, a engineer electronic engineer. So he owned a uh, Mr. Electronics uh, business, black business. And uh, it's like your family, when you have a dream, you you go to them and you kind of like, well, what can we do? Well, even then, which is way different than now, you had to have quite a bit of money to make records. You know, so he would make the promise that he would make 
some records for the group that was in we were in and so you thought your future was set and then all of a sudden taken out right, right out from under you you know uh because of finances uh because our family the carmichael family was uh, just a little uh under middle class not middle class but kind of lower middle class or whatever and uh investing in a a dream was almost like unheard of like no you don't want to do that you want to you want to go get a job at the post office which is uh, what uh was going on at the time so i didn't know i i i myself uh not commenting on uh, my brother and my cousin i made the conscious decision to uh just be more adventurous and my older sister brought me a lot of records a lot of whole lot of records and uh she uh was showing me the different people and you know who were around and so i went out uh me and my brother my cousin we went to a, a function and a guy named ben atkins uh who was the bass player for they actually put ben atkins actually replaced jermaine jackson and then jackson five so at the time uh knowing these young musicians and all of us knowing each other uh, we walked into a building, sang Down by the River by Buddy Miles, and he was like, I want you. I want that guy right there, Arnell. Called me up, and I was in a group uh, that he was in called Energy MC Square, and they had a bunch of uh, uh, experience and career uh, moves that they had made. Uh, Ray Parker was uh, one of the brothers of the musicians, and that connection when it comes to a dream was uh, something that was like wait a minute this is like coming a little clearer so uh we moved forward uh on our dream like some people say what's well, you know I, I i don't see it or i don't think it's gonna happen get a job well we actually all got together and we went to atlanta several times like back and forth because i did it with the carmichael movement as young kids, that's another story. And then with energy and uh, with energy, we actually uh, could come out of the darkness and pursue and see a dream that could really happen. And 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 even having that dream where you got Golden World as a record company, you know, a, a Band of Gold and a bunch of other records being made and knowing these people and my father having a re uh, having a catalog that was still alive, you go, wait a minute. This is this is maybe there's some hope, you know, in what we're doing. So the dream part of it uh, was like navigated without a map. <laughs> That's how I say it. You know, here we are trying to trying to become something. I mean, you, you I knew I was close to a, a success because, as I told you uh, earlier, like the Gordys were my friends. Like we grew up together. So when the Jacksons, these young acts got picked up by Motown, we're just the same age. And we're like, wait a minute, if they can get picked up, we can get picked up, you know? And so me, my brother, my cousin, we just kept pursuing whatever avenues, whatever dreams against maybe a lot of what my family thought, my mother and my step stepfather, because he taught me jazz. <laughs> so. We, you know, it was like they were like, no, go to the post office, go to the army, you know, go somewhere, make something happen. 
and and because I had all this ambition and was motivated and young and I got with energy and it just everything just started taking off because that was a two year all of this to say that by the time we got to 71 72 two years with this group and it began to look like we might be able to make it because at the same time I'm telling you all of this when we talk about the Atlanta part um, going to Atlanta with another manager and uh, with energy uh, we run into the Commodores we run into what would be known as the SOS band which was called the primes or the pyramids or the seven wonders or something like that. And we just were meeting a lot of people that were at the same time on the same level when the success happens, you know? So yeah, I, I, I can't say that I could see the dream, but I knew I was getting close to, you know, touching. You, 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 if a dream was a balloon and the string was right, like right here, we were so close to grabbing it that uh you had this eagerness to keep going and don't stop so yeah we could understand it but maybe not know how to control it and who who are some of your musical influences back then you know that inspired you how you were going to sing how you're going to play guitar well you know i have to go here and say all of this first because that's a very interesting question i've never known how to answer that one um we were young kids and at the time because my uncle was managing us we already had a roster of artists that was not known to america so my my true source of influences came from d-town uh lee rogers cody black d edwards emmanuel lasky the list was so long that it kind of was like an aching pain that we had all of these artists who Melvin Davis, <laughs> uh, Anita Sherman, which was the eighth day. I mean, there were so many people that we were modeling after that. Anything after that, anything after that was, I'm just as good as they are. So, you didn't realize it until you started understanding the music business that okay well you still got a lot to learn and when i'm talking about us stevie wonder is now like a big major artist and then i got another uh, uh aunt who marries uh into a family and uh the final countdown detroit emeralds all of these groups now are uh which would be like the five-man group thing that's all that's going on at the time now um as that's going on then we're in another group where we were doing rock and roll with a group called the braxis so when you ask me who was my influences every part of the music business was my influence because we were actually trying to make money we were trying to be paid we were trying to follow a pattern and you couldn't really follow the pattern because we hadn't hit the payday yet so then santana kicks in then um uh jimmy as i said jimmy hendrix george duke um frank zappa you know then then all of this other music start coming in and so you're hearing everything uh 
So it, it didn't dawn on me that I needed a lot of more training because, I mean, I was this young guy who was singing, maybe took piano lessons. I hadn't even started guitar yet. It's like now I'm like 17, 18, and we're getting ready to uh, go on the road and live in Atlanta. And I'm looking at influences and I'm going, well, wait a minute. So I run into this other guy, the energy band, as I was telling you, and they were like so ahead of their time. We recorded it. First of all, I'm going to say this right at this point. I have a uh, download music store called A-String Music. A-String Music had to be started because we had already done some recording. My father had a catalog. And in that music store are the, is the music of energy. Uh, Jelaine and some other of the songs, which these songs got us into uh, Ray Parker's environment. But, but the point is, is who was my influences? I just liked everybody. I mean, I liked Charlie Pride, and I wasn't into the country music. I liked um, Sonny Stitt, who was a drummer for Count Basie, because uh, my father was into jazz. So music, the influence of music was everywhere. The competition of what you should be doing or, or getting better at, uh, I would have been like Michael Jackson, but there was no way to understand it and believe it because we didn't have, like say for example, the Gordys, their family got together to do it. So when you say who influenced me, everything, <laughs> everything influenced me to the point of business, to the point of um, wanting to be a singer. Um, I, I, I would wake up in the mornings with my stepfather and I, I never forget I would be singing Johnny Mathis music. And so I've actually met Johnny Mathis' whole nother story <laughs> with Ray Parker. Uh, we sang on one of the records when Denise Williams and Johnny Mathis was together. Uh, so my influences are so great that even now I could I could ramble on, ran on about you know what I think of musicians. Um, I would have to say, knowing that. Uh, a little small story related to that would be, okay, so we're now 13, 14. Uh, Joe Jackson is pushing the Jacksons like crazy, and we come to the 20 grand after my father dies. My father's dead now. This is like 70, so this is like 71, uh, which actually would make me now 15, 16, because I'm getting ready to get out of uh, high school. So we go to the 20 grand, and on the table is carved, uh, the Jackson 5 was here. So we carved the Carmichael movement was here. And uh, in relationship to all of that, it was like, we gotta keep going. We gotta keep, we gotta keep working at this. We gotta keep trying, you know, because we should have been signed to Motown <laughs> as, when the Jacksons were signed, you know. So I, I have to say that watching Michael's career from a distance, and even though my friends now are like personal friends and working for him, and I can even tell you stories about Greg Fillinganes, who who's turned into his greatest piano player, you know, that I have to look at Michael Jackson as a, a very big, big influence in terms of um, seeing it. Like most artists would say, well, yeah, I like how uh, 
uh, I like how Teddy Pendergrass sings, and I like I studied him, but I didn't have to study anybody because I was I was just as good as the person that was doing it. But we just didn't have the backing to make it happen. So then to watch Michael to go through all of the stuff that they went through, and for him to get to that point, uh, when I say that point of the five albums that it was just the Michael Jackson album, not being and not all that stuff Motown was doing, but when he got into a thriller and all of that, then I realized that's a big influence in my life. It's, I refused to let go of uh, my skill set, even though I went through a lot of different times. So everybody's my influence. I can tell you a lot of stories that mentally connected me to a lot of people. Go ahead. Yeah, it sounds like you were just sort of uh, in an environment and kind of a sponge just taking it in from everywhere and just becoming part of that environment, you know? So kind of in well, the blood. That was one of my key traits. That was one of my traits was, was to be able to adapt to the situation. That's a better way to look at it. Go ahead. Yeah. So you're in the Carmichael movement. You're, you're trying to make it happen. You're, you're, you're not well-funded, but you got the dream. You got the passion. You got the faith. Um, so take me or take us, um, Arnell, from, from that point to when you – get closer to Ray Parker Jr. and get toward the radio thing? Well, that's interesting. Um, I can remember after Ben Atkins said to me, you know what? I want you to help me out and go sing with the group called Energy MC Square. You can go to www.astringmusicstore.com and you can listen to these songs a record called we got a sweet thing going on it's not a promotion this is just i had to do this because if i didn't do it i wouldn't even remember so i'm in the energy group now and i talked to uh the guys we get along uh, a, a friend of mine who a uh, nestor wilson who went on to play with david peaston and he died after that but uh was my best friend from energy we all got together i got my manager and uh, because it was slowing down in the Detroit area, we were planning to do a record and maybe go on the road. So then the, one of the guys, Vincent Bonham, who then became into radio, who got me into radio, makes a deal with a, a, a what is the name of that record what, studio? Anyway, Cloudborn. David, I uh, can't think of the guy's name, but recording. Um, so we do this record and Ray Parker, here's the record. And to prevent us, so he actually pays for us to come to California, but to Atlanta. We finished the record. We didn't like the deal uh, that uh, Pratt, uh, Gary Pratt, he did a lot of recording too, uh, went on to do that we went to Atlanta and group was kind of like breaking up. Uh, we had, by the way, in this whole little timeline thing, I'm kind of going back and forth because there's a lot of stuff that happens. So we, we and record 
some songs that Ray's got in his can for an album. Didn't get old. And coming back from Atlanta, I get this phone call. Vincent uh, has Ray on the phone, saying that uh, one of the three apartments, flats, uh, my grandmother owns a house, and I'm sitting in the flat. Says, "Hey, uh, there's a phone call over here for you," and I was like, "What?" So, to left because we had left Atlanta and all that, and he says, uh, "Ray wants you to come back to California." On his radio, well, hadn't he hadn't even figured a name out yet? I just want you to be in my group. How can you gonna get out here? He was buying tickets. He was like, "No, nah, you get out here on your own." So I uh, then leave. My grandmother's like, "You leaving?" I said, "Yeah, I'm gonna go to California with my friends." At the time, the the group Rufus was like really big, so. Uh, by myself now, because we had went out to California before, but now I'm by myself. And uh, it was really kind of weird because the song, he's on his way, busting it to Hollywood. <laughs> it was like this big record for Rufus. And it actually getting off the bus, but, you know, make a success in these strange and empty places. Yeah, 1997, Ask Rufus album. Yeah, that, that actually... Uh, when I was leaving to go work with Ray Parker after getting the call from Vincent and Ray saying, come out here. So I get off the bus <clears throat> and of course Ray picks me up and takes me down to a friend of mine's house, uh, my cousin's house in uh, Torrance, California. And uh, he tells me all the stuff he's going to do, blah, 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 blah. And there, I mean, it was like, uh, I, I don't know if that was actually 77. I think it was like 76 because we spent most of 77 making that record. You know, we spent most of that year making that record. And uh, when it came out, I just didn't believe it was really going to do that much. I didn't like the song. <laughs> I thought uh, uh, it took me like hours to sing the song. And I was just green, fresh guy out of Detroit, uh, you know, actually two years older than Ray, but I still felt younger because he had, he just had all this experience. And uh, when it took off, it was truly like out of, uh, uh, actually they should make a movie about this whole stuff <laughs> because it just was amazing how big it blew up. Eric being the first a really truly promoted black group on Arista with Clive Davis and Ray, you know, having their deal together and we just being all under the production. I mean, it just was like major, you know, so that was the start of it right there from energy with his brother. Uh, and uh, they had a, you know, a, a magnificent start as a young group called Mad Dog and the Pumps and, uh, Converting over to young men who are as good as Tower of Power at the same time Tower of Power was out. I'm singing, we're doing all kind of mini Ripperton Rufus songs. 
So when Ray he heard me sing, he actually heard me imitating Shaka Khan and all these other people. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing what what was asked of me by these group of guys that we all got together with. So by the time we got to the record, I'm probably overskilled, too much, too much talent, uh, maybe not enough technical technicality of recording like I should have. And it took me longer because Jerry Knight came in there and sang that record within like two tries, maybe even one try. But I know he had to go back and punch a, a few parts, but it took me 14 hours and I was really not happy. Like, this is not good, you know. So I didn't think I was going to be kicked out of the group. But I, I just didn't feel good about well, did I do a great performance? I didn't know trying to get my girlfriend to, at the time to come to California and you know, uh, that was the start of it. That was the theme of the whole thing. It was like, well, I, I have a lot of questions around that or now. So where in the sequence of the tracks that would make onto the album was Jack and Joel done that took all that time for you? Was it early in the recording sessions later? No, that was the first song I did with Ray. Wow. After uh, we had, um, a part of the story, which is a lot of people don't know, we had done probably a seven song project and it was going to be under energy. And uh, a song called like Love to Make Love to You was like this really cool song. So I had to do all of that stuff easy, just simple, like because we knew the songs, we had practiced the songs, Jelaine, people had written the songs, you know, it was just, we all knew, you know, what we needed to do. Again, when you're that far ahead of what's really happening in the music business, you know, um, Power Power was way past what Clive Davis would even imagine. And he, he signed up, he signed up all kind of acts, but he never had a Tower Power. Maybe he might have been the executive at the company, but he didn't really know music that great. He just really liked. So when Ray gets to us, now you got another period. Now you got all of this Motown session stuff, guys. And you know, they have this pocket and this groove and everybody's just loving what it is. And so that timing is different. Like when you hear those songs, nobody in the world knew what they were making unless you had a producer or an arranger who understood what was supposed to happen with the melody over the songs. And Ray Parker was a master of writing songs at a young age. Like now we're talking 17, 18, 19. I'm, I'm like two years older than Ray. So uh, if I'm looking at the timeline and we're talking about Jack and Jill and what it did, hell, he just wrote, you make me feel like dancing. It was stole from him. So he's angry inside, but he's not showing the anger. He's just displaying all of this cockiness that he's he's done. He's been with Barry White now. He's here's a kid that at 13 or 14 already played on Marvin Gaye's record. So he knows, you know, what music to make. Well, that doesn't count for the rest of the world. The rest of the world was listening to the Sly and the Family Stones. The rest of the world was listening to the same music Stevie Wonder Ray's listening to. Ray's playing with Stevie Wonder and all that kind of stuff. But we're mentally 
and functionally ahead of the game, playing too much. There have been rumors of Detroit musicians coming to L.A., almost telling the producers at the time, Jay Graydon, Foster, all them guys, this is what we're going to do. And then they get kicked out the studio because <laughs> they're nobodies. <laughs> You know, and they overplay, so you get kicked off. Well, that was the same thing about what we were. We were way ahead of ourselves. And Ray just happened to be in the pulse of the scene to say, no, this is what we need to make to make somebody pay attention. And so when he did that, which right now, as we talk about music and all of this whole thing, if anybody's listening to this, you know, it's a really strange environment because there are no publishing companies or activities by managers to kind of lead you in the right direction. Everything is like just random. We didn't have that. We had managers, we had producers, we had engineers and people who actually tell you this is what should happen. You know, and when Ray did that, it kind of messed me up. It kind of like put me in this environment where I was like, I don't really know what I need to know. Uh, I thought that I understood the intricacies of timing, and, and he actually showed me. He was like, here, this is what you got to do. You do this, and this will be on the record. And so I made it on the record, and I didn't think – and this is it was really weird about it. There's a cash box article that actually has this story in it where I say uh, what I'm getting to now, alluding to now would be, I, you know, I just didn't know about the record. I just told myself, shut up, be quiet. Because I, I could have said a lot, like, that ain't right. That's just, no, it don't sound like this, you know. But it was me now. I could actually hear me on Ray's record and not Shaka Khan or not Minnie Riverton or not somebody that I was imitating. And I'm not gay by any means, but I'm naming those songs because my voice is, is such that it, even at this age, my falsetto sounds like a woman. I, I used to get, as a teenager, back then, of course, with the landline phones, you'd answer the phone and they say, hello, madam, and I would be mad, like, I'm not a woman, I'm a guy, <laughs> you know. So anyway, uh, by the time we get to Ray and we get to Jack and Jill, I realized that I have some more stuff to learn. And Jack and Jill was clear proof, cash box article will show you where I say, you know, I just sang the record. I don't really care about the record. I don't really like the record. I just started liking Jack and Jill somewhere in the round two, maybe after Ghostbusters. Well, you know, Arnett, I gotta tell you, you know, my backstory is for I knew about Ray Parker Jr. and I was kind of a fan previously because I was into all that music and I knew he was on Stevie Wonder and I loved the Rufus song. I knew he was playing some great stuff with Herbie Hancock and all that stuff he was doing. Right, so right. I was following him and a fan and when he launched his own group, I was like, this is cool. And then the first single or first song I heard was Jack and Jill and I was frankly actually a little disappointed because I was into the, the groove stuff, you know? And... Um, I was so relieved and happy when I got the record and heard that there was all this other, you know, great stuff on it and that that was not really that indicative of the whole record, you know. Right. Uh, but it did succeed in bringing so many people to what the record was, which was a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it did bring a lot of people together. Uh, did you know at the time he was working with Barry White? 
No, I didn't follow Barry Weiss closely. Uh, so, but I mean, I knew he, he seemed like he was almost on every record I was looking at in the 70s. I mean, he yeah, was and, everywhere. And the reason why I bring it up because that was a really big influence for me at the, at the time when Ray's doing all of this stuff. Again, I'm here in Detroit. I'm with these guys trying to make some stuff happen. And uh, as I told you, my sister brought me all these records again. This is like another round of her bringing me records. So she brings me this, this record. Uh, and I have to be honest with the American public because I'm going to tell you this way. I look at the record and I go, Ray Parker is on a Barry White record. And I'm going, I know them. I'm in, I'm in the band with these guys. And, you know, so uh, when I saw that, I said, I went back and I called uh, his brother and I said, man, he need to help us out. <laughs> <laughs> And, and O'Pelton said, well, we working on it, you know, and I said, you know, about the record deal and going and they were like, it's going to happen. And uh, I went with my friend uh, one last time we went hanging out and uh, we dropped some mescaline, you know, pill, it's T THC or whatever. And they played that record that Ray played on at, at this club. And I never went to sleep after that. I was like, oh, my God. That guy, I'm getting ready to get a chance to work with that guy, you know. Uh, and it just started happening. Things just started happening, you know. The last time I ever got high, but I, it was a definite marking point of knowing that this young kid that we knew, he was talking about how he was making a lot of money and he um, could play the guitar and he was playing with Barry White. And I heard the records and I was like, that's what got me into Barry White because I would have not listened to Barry White had my sister not showed me, uh, you know, you know these people. And I said, yeah, uh, you know, so that started it. Yeah. Yeah, I got the, uh, I don't know if you can see me now. You said earlier you, you couldn't, but I'm showing the uh, the picture of the four of you guys that was on that yeah, first record. Yeah, Some, so. I, I, it's really interesting. Um, that picture is in the alley of behind the, uh, energy where all of Nate Watts, that's like Nate Watts's house. He's a CB1 his bass player is right behind that. You can't see it, but it's, we came to Detroit to take that picture. Yeah. It's become iconic to certain hip hop people here in Detroit too. I don't know why, but it's crazy. Let me ask you some more about that first record though. So uh, what was it like working with Ray? Because it seemed to me, you know, and I mentioned at the outset that, um, the sound, which was unique um, to, to me at the time for the band, mm -hmm. that, right. that the, the best way I could describe it is sort of like um, Spinners meets uh, Norman Whitfield or Spinners meets uh, Stevie Wonder type production. And yeah. then yeah. I didn't I didn't realize at the time, Arnell, when I was when I was doing that until I went and looked back, that Ray had actually worked with the Spinners. So, you know, I'm yeah. thinking. Maybe he took some of that forward, and then also the influence from uh, working and seeing Stevie Wonder, who does it all. Yeah, and, and interesting um, of all of that, you have it should be noted that um, again, Motown and many small independent record companies from Golden World, D Town, Rich Pick. Uh, uh god I, I, I and that's horrible because it's so many i can't even think of the names of them westbound 
so many. You know, you got all these musicians. It's like a factory where everybody's making a car. You know, closely related to music. You got the same twenty nine thousand people working on the same vehicle. So things are going to rub off, and the spinners didn't take off. Uh, as this major group during the time when a lot of people were playing with him. So for Ray, he probably had a chance to play with them. Uh, of course, then also from the Spinners to Marvin Gaye to Stevie Wonder, you know, playing in this system, they were making records. I could go back to uh, 1959, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, financed by the Jewish community and uh, produced by young black guys trying to make a career for themselves or trying to go into partnership would then be the influence of all of that. For Ray Parker, just a total influence of uh, how you write. I mean, then you get to California and all of these guys are proper players, maybe knowing more or feeling more and Ray fit in as, as a young guy who understood it, you know? Uh, one of the things that I learned about him in terms of the influence of the record uh, was that he was respected as a special musician. But then on top of that, to take his uh, money and reinvest it in his own recording studio and then have to actually produce the music that the studio would then be recognized for and turning it into American. I was there for every inch of that. Never thinking that this was that important. I just thought it was just a part of the fabric, a part of what's supposed to go down. But uh, when you look back over it and you go, boy, at that particular time, he was very, very influential. Um, from the connections that he made, which doesn't happen for a lot of people. A lot of people get in this business and they think that they're gonna make it, but for Ray Parker, just being a songwriter was really big. That was a big thing. And I didn't know it, you know, um, no disrespect to Ray, but I just thought he was, you know, this popular musician that everybody liked, but no, he built a, Solid career. Dinah Ross wanted Jack and Jill. Clive Davis wanted Jack and Jill. I happened to be fortunate to sing on Jack and Jill. And, and when you say about the tone of the record or the creativity of the record, uh, remember now, moves and drum machines weren't made. So now you got everybody from who's who trying to play on the record or not trying to play on the record because they already had a career. So uh, Ray's writing abilities from working all those sessions proved that he could repeat countless uh, times what he made money from as a session musician. And that was impressive to me because I was there. I was there for probably 99% of the radio records, even uh, after I stopped somewhere 83 or whatever, and uh, I still would come back to help him, you know, with other background stuff. But it was just too clear that even with 
um, and and contrary to what I believe, you know, you got all these other musicians, Larry Talbert, uh, Dave, I can't think of that guy's name, Dave, there's another guy we hear a lot, um, Sylvester Rivers, Wow Wow Watson, you know, Vincent Bonham, Charles Green, Horatio Gordon, Alan McGreer, you had all these musicians who contributed what they may have thought of was their, their ideas, but would be to what a producer does to arrangers. You know, arrangers come in and arrange the music, then the producer says, well, you know, that eight bars right there, cut that out. You know, well, Ray was actually writing this. He's, he's with you, he gave you credit. Uh, we talk about the lyricist Sterling Johnson and all of those people who helped him write lyrics or who helped him tell the story. He gave you credit because he was producing his record. And at the same time producing his record, uh, Reggie, Reggie Dozier, uh, Steve Hallquist is trying to help this sound and engineer the record. And I'm seeing all of these people uh, it's kind of like if you were on the uh, construction side of a, of, a, of, a, of a five or six story building. You got all these people that's coming around telling you what you need, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And he's at the forefront of those people making this suggestion. You know, so then walking, and for me walking into the studio and seeing the studio built and going, wow, he's got this in his house. That was impressive. That, that was. That was really impressive, man. How did the sound kind of coalesce and come together? Because the sound, especially the vocal arrangements and little, you know, little uh, different kinds of voices here and there, and uh, sort of that well, rubbery groove. How did that come know, together? Again, um, I want to say that when you are making a record, and you have this idea. Now, your budget, now, now this is something that didn't happen because of Aerosmith. Ray was reaching into his pocket and paying what he could pay. And uh, there was no deal constructed yet. So that means he's a session musician everybody in town he knows who's closely associated from his past like valerie jones sang on a record francie perlman sang on a record dory pride sang on the record on jack and jill uh ollie brown is somewhere uh, involved the percussions of the record uh ray might have played the bass he might have played the drums he might have played the synthesizer parts but then sylvester rither played the piano parts or put the string parts on there and then jerry knight might have came and sang some parts but and I might have sang Lee, but it was at least 29, 30 other people that was on that record that, that he had to, in his mind, say, no, I like this better because there was another version, which is a demo version, before he got to do this version. Uh, he did it on a 16-track machine, which he gave that machine away to Herbie Hancock. And so, again, your influences and how you hear it and what you do and how many people that got involved who were actually professional enough to do the song, you know, do this particular song. So, uh, and then, you know, again, I'm, I'm thinking about, as you are maybe um, wondering how it all came together, 
it was just the combination of that time of what needed to happen for it to make history. You know, and the rumor of he stole it from Slyre. You know, without me not being Ray Parker to say it, I didn't hear Stan when he wrote the record, but I'm sure it's somewhere close to his thoughts. I heard a nursery rhyme that I thought, (laughs) this is silly. We're really going to make this record, you know. Again, I didn't say anything. And when it was finished, uh, it just was amazing to know, okay, I say on some record, Ray got named Jack and Jill, and he says it's going to get a big deal. And all of a sudden, the next thing I know, it's, uh, you know, my phone temperature, that's probably what is wrong with this thing. Okay, temperature's too high. But anyway, those kind of things about all of the people and your connections was the influence of that record and his past as a young guy. You know what I'm saying? You Like, I'm looking at your wall. I see all those gold records on the wall, right? But Ray's been on so many gold records that he didn't have to put those records up for me to be impressed. I, I was impressed with me, Arnell, that I was there, but that ego had to be set aside so that you could get into his mind, his world, and let him do his record. Because at, 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 at a point in our lives, uh, everybody who feels that they're in the forefront of something, maybe something else is the force that, that is going to push you forward. So for you, uh, what kind of satisfaction was it going back to family members who had said, be a postal worker, you know, and saying, hey, I got a hit record? Well, I didn't do that. I mean, that would be the general reaction of a lot of people. I was still not satisfied because I didn't know what it was. Um, we were actually in Florida at where maybe Washington uh, at an airport, I think JFK, no, that's New York, but whatever the metropolitan airport is in uh, the Florida or Washington area, where you are, Northwest area, that, I mean, the, the, the South area, whatever that is, you know, East Coast, whatever. They brung that record, the gold record through the airport. 